This is Marshall Weiss, editor and publisher of the Dayton Jewish Observer, and I'm happy to be with you again for the Jewish News Hour. This week I'll read from the New York Jewish Week. First from the Jewish Week, an opinion piece, Can We Save the Unity of the Jewish People? A major effort is needed to link Israel and diaspora Jews, lest we repeat the mistakes of the past, by Rabbi Irving Yitz Greenberg. This essay began its life as a Devar Torah, a discussion of Torah, on Parshat Vayigash, Torah portion Vayigash, and its Haftorah, the Prophets section, which contradicts the Torah's story. But I believe Vayigash's historical parallels are so striking that we must urgently consider these two conflicting stories and the lessons they teach us to prevent a split in world Jewry in our time. First, the Torah portion, Genesis 44:18 to 47:27, recounts the crime that shattered Jacob's family. Joseph's brothers had seethed at Jacob's undisguised preference for his wife, Rachel. They were hurt and infuriated by Jacob's manifest favoritism for Rachel's firstborn. Their anger turned into hatred when Joseph boasted of recurring divine signals that he would rule over them in the future. Finally, when Joseph visits his brothers in the fields, they determine to kill him. Judah, Joseph's chief rival for leadership of the family, manages to persuade them instead to sell Joseph into slavery in Egypt. Joseph's disappearance devastated Jacob's life. The cover-up of the crime locked the family into a prison of silence, guilt, and alienation from each other as they watched their father's endless grief and self-recrimination. Why had he sent Joseph out alone? They were helpless to comfort him and unable to tell the truth. Joseph survived the shocking, the shocking plunge from pampered favorite child to the dregs of slavery under a foreign master. He drew upon inner resources to rise to important positions in his master's household and to endure sexual harassment and betrayal by his master's wife. He was not broken by demotion and imprisonment. In jail, he made himself so useful as to be repeatedly promoted. In a lightning turnaround, Joseph interpreted the royal dreams that Pharaoh's magicians and wise men failed to do. He correctly diagnosed a coming famine and came up with a plan to prevent starvation. Taken from prison and appointed chief administrator, Joseph presided over a massive grain collection which sustained the Egyptian people and all the neighboring nations. We marvel at Joseph's internal conviction that God had chosen him to be Egypt's savior and which enabled him to climb the pinnacle of power without losing his way or having his head turned. In only one way is Joseph damaged. He rejected his family and walled off his past. He never even tried to contact his loving father during the seven years he was the vizier and second-in-command in Egypt. Nor did he reach out to family in the initial years of a consuming famine. Jacob's family was hopelessly fractured. When Joseph meets the brothers who came to buy food for their hungry households, he feels no pity or longing for them. He toys with and torments them. Perhaps he really did want to see his only full brother Benjamin, 
from whom he was violently separated years ago, but he has no plan to reconcile. His brothers are dead to him, as he said when he named his first son Manasseh, God has made me, helped me forget all my toil and all my father's house. Joseph plans to see Benjamin and let them all go out of his life forever. But Benjamin evokes a storm of emotion in him, leading him to improvise to frame Benjamin and keep him in Egypt. Now comes the unexpected denouement. Judah approaches Joseph directly and finds the one key that unlocks his hardened heart. He communicates Jacob's never-ending heartbreak at his missing beloved son. Judah offers to become a slave in Benjamin's place. That is to say, far from reacting violently to Jacob's total positive love for Rachel's youngest son, Judah will give up his own life in order not to break his father's heart again. Joseph's blocking wall crumbled. He is flooded with yearning and nostalgia for the father who loved him more than life. In a moment of clarity, he also sees that his brother's hateful and cruel action made possible his growing up to become a great leader. Surviving the rejection moved him from a self-centered narcissist to a person who was fulfilled by being an instrument of God's plan to rescue Egypt from famine and save his family from extinction. Joseph, moved to the core, reaches out to his father and family. He brings them down to Egypt and nurtures them lovingly through the famine and its aftermath. This is the inspiring story of the near-miraculous reuniting of Jacob's broken family and the restoration of its wholeness. The story is almost too good to be true. The Haftorah, the book of the prophets for Vayigash, Ezekiel 37, 15-28, relates the sad reality that there was not a happy ending. The competition continued below the surface, as evidenced by Jacob's mixed blessings and curses on the different sons and the brothers' concern after Jacob's death that Joseph would now take revenge. When the children of Israel took possession of Canaan, tribal rivalries returned. In particular, the tribes of Ephraim, son of Joseph and Judah, dueled for uh, supremacy. King Saul came from the tribe of Ephraim, and the Judeans were somewhat distanced from him. David, Saul's son-in-law, came from the tribe of Judah. David's success and the Judeans' obvious preference for him drove Saul into paranoia, and he tried to destroy David. David and Solomon managed united despite the alienation of the tribe of Ephraim and its allies. But Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was a weak ruler and the nation split into two under him, the kingdom of Israel, comprising most of the ten tribes, and the kingdom of Judah, mostly Judah, Benjamin, and part of the Levi tribe. The kingdoms competed religiously, including Israel's creation of two worship centers in Beit El and Dan to keep the Israelites from going to Jerusalem for their communal religious worship. Sadly, there were neither rulers great enough nor prophets successful enough to reunite the two kingdoms. While the kingdom of Israel suffered many coups, archaeology shows it was the larger and dominant power in the area, with Judah as its satellite. This came to a crashing end when Assyria invaded and conquered Israel, sending the people into exile and replacing them with other ethnic groups. 
Tragically, the ten tribes assimilated and were lost to Jewish history. Over a century later, the new imperial power of Babylonia conquered Judah and exiled many of its people. But Judah had undergone repeated religious renewals. Part of the Judeans' internal strength came from the religious deepening and revival in response to the destruction of Israel, and the arrival of a large group of Israel's most religious citizens as refugees to the kingdom of Judah. Once Babylonia was overthrown by the Persians and Medes, the Judeans returned to the homeland, having successfully maintained their religious identity intact. However, the lack of religious interaction with Judah over the centuries left the general Israelite population weaker in religion and covenantal identity, leading to their assimilation and disappearance. The Haftorah of Vayigash is a vision of Ezekiel prophesying in Babylon more than a century after the disappearance of the kingdom of Israel. He is instructed to take one stick and write on it for Judah and the tribe's companions. On another stick, he writes for Ephraim and the tribes of Israel. The Lord promises to unite the sticks into one, representing the united and restored people of Israel. The Haftorah is heartbreaking because you realize the nostalgia and yearning behind the rabbinic pairing of this prophetic portion. Unlike Judah and Vaigash, there was no political leader or prophet over the centuries to approach the two kingdoms and speak the unifying words of faith and reconciliation that could have saved Israel or at least assured the survival in exile of its people. By Ezekiel's time, the ten tribes were hope hopelessly lost. The prophet articulates the longing for reunion and profound regret at all the missed opportunities to unite the two main Israelite centers, which might have saved both. This is the message of Vayigash and its Haftorah for our time. Again, there are two major centers of Jewry in the world, in Israel and Diaspora. Again, after a century of solidarity and mutual aid, there is the splintering effect of political differences, geographic distance, and religious cultural divergence. Many are complacent, saying sociological and cultural trends will run their course, and there is nothing we can do. This week's Parsha, Torah portion, and Haftorah, Prophet's portion, constitute a warning not to repeat the errors of the past. We need to mount a major effort to link Israel and diaspora Jews in a new consciousness of deeper unity and learning with and from each other. I want to mention and praise here Our Common Destiny, a project launched last year by Genesis Philanthropy Group and the Israel Ministry of Diaspora Affairs under the auspices of President Ruben Rivlin. This initiative is dedicated to bringing Jewish communities together by focusing on our common values. The guiding text of the project is the Declaration of Our Common Destiny, an eloquent document that sets forth the core principles that have connected the Jewish people for millennia. Our Common Destiny crowdsourced the completion of the Declaration, a global effort that garnered the participation of more than 130,000 Jews from all over the world. I urge you to go to the website, read the document, offer your own input, and join in the process. On December 17th, there was an online celebration of the Declaration in the presence of President Rivlin in a program called Illuminate, a Global Jewish Unity event. 
I believe that we must build on the declaration and add communal structures to link Israel and the diaspora. Some permanent structure is needed to assure that Israel's governments have a strong connection to diaspora Jewry and an effective channel to hear its needs. We need to expand programs of direct contact between diaspora Jews and Israelis. The classic programs are Tagalit Birthright Israel, which brings 50,000 young Jews annually to Israel for a free 10-day intensive educational trip, and Masa, which enables a more extended stay and study program in Israel. These and other similar programs are building a reservoir of Jews who have encountered Israel firsthand. Studies show that diaspora participants develop relationships with Israelis and attachment to Israel so they can process divergence and conflict yet remain deeply attached. Charles Bronfman and Irina Nevslin have announced the formation of ENTER, the Jewish Peoplehood Alliance, which focuses on digital connections between world Jewish communities and Israel. Its goal is also to engage Israelis more and to raise Jewish peoplehood's salience in Israeli education. Now that there is a shakeup in Israel's political right, there is an opportunity to reach out to Prime Minister Netanyahu and his would-be successors to be more responsive and responsible to the diaspora. This gives us an opportunity to undo some of the mistakes made in recent years that offend diaspora Jewry. These opportunities include exclusion of liberal Jewish movements and denial of recognition to their converts or marriages, and the repudiation of the compromise permission of non-Orthodox services at the Western Wall. These policies resulted from Netanyahu's deferring to Haredim on government religious policies for the sake of gaining their political support. Netanyahu argues that the other parties, including the opposition, also defer for the sake of political support, but the time has come to stop this practice and put Jewish unity first. There are those who justify giving the ultra-Orthodox a monopoly on Israel's religious affairs, claiming it will preserve the unity of the Jewish people to have one officially recognized standard. But there can be no unity without recognition of the pluralism and diversity which is dominant in diaspora Jewry. Similarly, Netanyahu's neglect of the Democratic Party, political home of 80% of American Jewry, should be reversed to restore full bipartisan support for Israel. Finally, world Jewry also must make a new major investment in, in liberal, open orthodoxy, the only religious force that can challenge Haredim on their halachic turf, turf and open the door to pluralistic Israeli government policies. The famous dictum is that those who do not learn from history are condemned to relive it. We need to make a massive investment in connecting Israel and diaspora Jewry, lest we end up losing one Jewish center, which would profoundly weaken the other. We need our Judah leadership to speak the right words and focus on the right projects to keep Jewry in both its centers as one people, bound by fate and by choice, and sustaining each other. Rabbi Irving Yitz Greenberg serves as the president of the J.J. Greenberg Institute for the Advancement of Jewish Life and a senior scholar in residence at Hadar. And next from the Jewish Week, from the editor's desk, when public shaming is a moral disaster. The social media mob demands justice. It often achieves the opposite, by Andrew Silo Carroll. 
I know all about making stupid mistakes as a teenager because I raised teenagers and because I used to be one. Like most people, I would not want to be condemned for something I did or said as a 15-year-old. I think that's how a lot of people are feeling about the case of a white high school freshman in Virginia who is seen on a Snapchat video using the N-word. A black classmate saw the already three-year-old video last year, appalled by it and the casual culture of racism at his high school. He held on to it and shared it publicly when the young woman had chosen a college. I wanted to get her where she would understand the severity of that word, he told the New York Times. He got his wish. Amid the social media furor that followed, the University of Tennessee dropped her from its elite cheerleading team and then pressured her successfully to decline her acceptance. Like so many examples in the age of online shaming, there are at least two sides to this story, coolly captured in the Times piece. Black students had long complained that the high school had not taken reports of pervasive racism seriously. A report commissioned last year by the school district documented a pattern of school leaders ignoring the widespread use of racial slurs by both students and teachers, fostering a growing sense of despair among students of color, the Times reports. Jewish readers, mindful of the explosive growth of anti-Semitic invective online and in public life, can relate to this despair. Jewish organizations regularly call out purveyors of anti-Semitic words and deeds and are often frustrated at the lack of consequences. What would your reactions to this story be if instead of using the N-word she had said kike or heeb? On the other hand, Jewish groups usually focus on public figures and adults or individuals who either show a pattern of anti-Semitic behavior or have some influence. There's no indication in the Times story that the young woman had a reputation as a racist. Earlier this year, in a public Instagram post, she urged people to join the protests in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. Many of these commenting on the Times story feel the young woman was paying too high a price for an ugly message she sent privately to a friend as a 15-year-old, and that the young woman should have sought an apology instead of revenge. It seems that Ms. Groves had an immature adolescent moment trying to sound gangsta. That's it, writes a reader from Santa Monica, California. So now she shoulders the payback for centuries of true racism and hateful acts, not to mention the last four painful years of Trump and his ilk's blatant racism. Many readers held up the incident as the latest example of cancel culture, which it is not. Cancel culture is about the boundaries of speech and whether one can express unpopular or unorthodox views without fear of social backlash. No one, or at least hardly anyone, is defending the young woman's right to use the N-word. This is a story about public shaming and the frightening ease by which a conflict that may best be handled person to person or within a community gets adjudicated in the court of national public opinion with its players as human collateral. The University of Tennessee's response to that shaming was spineless, but they were treating it as a public relations problem as opposed to an educational or values challenge. This school could have reacted in a way that drew on the principles of restorative justice rather than, okay, cancel culture, but with its own troubled record on race, the university couldn't afford to offer a creative solution to the controversy. Both students were failed by forces greater than they.
institutions that refuse to confront hate, racism and hate, and a culture that prefers to perform virtue rather than seek and tolerate just and edifying solutions. I've covered a number of controversies over anti-Semitism, often involving a celebrity who offered a tasteless or mean-spirited remark about Jews or Israel. I've seen organizations charged with policing anti-Semitism rush to condemn and punish the guilty, rather than seek a conversation or use such incidents for what we used to call, in a less fraught environment, a teachable moment. And some Jewish organizations engage in the very same rituals of public shaming they might otherwise condemn. The Despicable Canary Mission, for example, posts dossiers on student activists who are deeply critical of Israel. Even when these students say hateful things, the enterprise reeks of McCarthyism. Other pro-Israel groups were early adapters of cancel culture and public shaming trying to draw strict boundaries around what can and can't be said about Israel and the Palestinians. I've been in rooms with Jewish conservatives who, in the same breath, condemn a snowflake culture that seeks to protect delicate young people from uncomfortable ideas while demanding that Jewish students be shielded from hearing pro-Palestinian perspectives. And who really wins in these rituals of exposure and censure? The complainants look uncharitable and vindictive. The wrongdoers feel more aggrieved than chastened. Onlookers pick a team and root for blood. Public shaming is a time-honored and necessary tool when trying to bring large institutions and powerful individuals to heal. It's a moral disaster when applied to ordinary and ordinarily flawed people. Andrew Silo Carroll is the editor-in-chief of The Jewish Week. And next from The Jewish Week, Cuomo seeks probe of vaccine fraud at Brooklyn Clinic. Executive order could make health providers liable for fines up to $1 million. New York Governor Andrew Cuomo said that vaccine-related fraud would come with consequences and that an investigation of a clinic serving New York's Orthodox community would be referred to the state attorney general's office. We will not tolerate any fraud in the vaccination process, Cuomo said at a news conference Monday. Anyone who engages in fraud is going to be held accountable. His comments come two days after New York State Health Commissioner Howard Zucker announced a criminal investigation into Parkhare Community Health Network, a chain of clinics operating in Brooklyn, Manhattan, and Orange County. Parkhare is alleged to have obtained the vaccines fraudulently and administered doses to members of the public when only certain groups are eligible to receive the vaccination. One prominent modern Orthodox rabbi who received a vaccine at Parkhare Clinic said he had not been aware that the vaccines were administered improperly and that he would not have done it had he known the process was not above board. We want to send a clear signal to the providers that if you violate the law on these uh, vaccinations, we will find out and you will be prosecuted, Cuomo said. Parkhare, which maintains that it obtained the vaccines appropriately, is owned by Gary Schlesinger, a prominent Hasidic businessman. Schlesinger's Facebook page includes pictures of him with various New York elected officials, including State Attorney General Letitia James. We are actively cooperating with the State of New York inquiries, Parkhare said in a statement. Governor Cuomo himself stressed the importance of getting all the facts and providing the facts to the state is exactly what we have done and will continue to do. Cuomo also announced he would sign an executive order Monday that would make that could make health providers who engage in vaccine-related fraud liable 
for fines of up to $1 million and could revoke state licenses. It was not immediately clear if the state would revoke providers' general medical licenses or just licenses to administer the vaccine. And next we'll go over to the Jewish Telegraphic Agency. How the Pandemic Has Scrambled the Rabbi Hiring Process by Stuart Ain. When Andrew Pepperstone drove to Kansas in late July to start his new job as rabbi at the Hebrew Congregation of Wichita, it was the first time he'd ever been to the city. My entire search for a new pulpit job was conducted during COVID-19, he explained, so all his interactions with the conservative congregation had been virtual. I did a tour of the synagogue on FaceTime with a member of the synagogue's house committee, Pepperstone said, and he rented a house in Wichita after touring it via video. What had proved most challenging was securing a new position in the midst of a public health and financial crisis that has caused several synagogues to suspend hiring. Congregations said they would get by for another year without hiring a rabbi, or their own rabbi agreed to stay on for another year, said Pepperstone, 48. In another case, I was being considered to be the associate rabbi at a congregation, and we had had great conversations. But then they said that because of the impact of COVID on their finances, they couldn't guarantee my salary, and so couldn't commit themselves. As a result, they shut down their search. The pandemic, said Rabbi Aaron Brousseau, co-chair of the Placement Committee for the Conservative Movement's Rabbinical Assembly, has impacted everything and the placement process is no different. Synagogues are the linchpin of American Jewish life, a place where Jews gather not just for prayer, but to celebrate weddings and brises, hold funerals, and even send their children to preschool. The rabbi, or at large synagogues, multiple rabbis, is the central figure in American synagogues. He or she not only delivers sermons and teaches classes, but presides over simchas, counsels troubled congregants, and in some cases supervises staff that can number in the dozens. More often than not, the rabbis occupy their pulpits for decades. Their salary is paid for by the congregation's members. So when synagogues seek to hire a rabbi, they embark on a long, high-stakes process not unlike a business in search of a CEO or a person in search of a life partner. The relationship between a congregation and rabbi is a sacred partnership, said Rabbi Devorah Weisberg, director of the Reform Rabbinical School at Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion in Los Angeles. Finding the right match is crucial, crucial for both parties. COVID-19 has scrambled that fraught process as well as the job itself. The role of the rabbi is to serve as teacher, offer pastoral care and comfort, create community, and help people in need, said Jennifer Stofman, director of synagogue consulting at the United Synagogue of Conservative Judaism, the movement's umbrella organization. Obviously, the word need has been broadened during the pandemic, she said. Many rabbis are now spending a lot of their time reaching out to congregants to calm their anxiety, offer support, and connect them with programs and services that can help them get through this very challenging time. Before the coronavirus pandemic, congregational search committees would begin the interview process by phone, but eventually move to in-person interviews culminating in a Shabbat visit. During that weekend, job candidates would lead a service, deliver a sermon, meet with preschoolers, teach a class, maybe have lunch with staff and schmooze with congregants during Kiddush on Shabbat. 
But with U.S. COVID-19 infection rates sky high and most non-Orthodox synagogues holding services online rather than in person, synagogues that haven't been able to hold those critical synagogues have not been able to hold those critical weekend trials. In March, Rabbi Michael Werbo managed to squeeze in an in-person week-out weekend tryout at Tiferet Israel in Washington, D.C., right before the pandemic shut down everything. He got the job, but by the time he started, the building was shuttered. Most of our services have been on Zoom, Werbo said. I did 31 meet-and-greet sessions online with approximately 12 people in each session as a way to try to get to know people. Through that, I met about two-thirds of the congregation. As a matter of policy, all job interviews for rabbis in the non-Orthodox religious denominations, including conservative, reconstructionist, and reform, are now done virtually. Rabbi Jillian Cameron began looking for a pope position in the fall of 2019 after deciding to, uh, to leave her position in Boston as director of an organization that supports interfaith families. But it wasn't until the pandemic that uh, began that Cameron, who is gay, found the right fifth, Beth Chaim Chadashim, a Los Angeles congregation that bills itself as the world's first synagogue for LGBTQ Jews. She did online interviews with the search committee, synagogue officials and leaders of the transgender Havura, and sent sermons in writing. She was hired in May. I'd never before seen it, so there was a bit of faith on both sides, Cameron said of her new job. Several months after moving to California, she said it is absolutely the right place for me. In the Orthodox world, where most synagogues are open but with strict capacity limitations for worshipers, hiring has slowed down significantly, according to Rabbi Adir Posey, director of the Orthodox Union's Department of Community and Synagogue Services. Shuls are trying to keep the status quo and not engage in massive searches for new staff during a time when people have generally not been able to travel, Posey said. Nevertheless, he said the varying degrees of severity of the COVID-19 outbreak in America means that synagogues in low-infection areas are able to conduct many more in-person activities than synagogues in high-infection areas. Joel Schreiber, chairman of the Rabbinic Search Committee at an Orthodox shul in suburban New York, said his committee at the Lido Beach Synagogue on Long Island is planning to invite three leading candidates for weekday visits to give congregants a chance to meet them. We also plan to have it on Zoom, he said. Despite the new challenges in the hiring process, some say the job market actually has improved because longtime rabbis are expediting retirement. About 50 conservative congregations in North America are actively looking to hire a rabbi, according to Stoffman. There are also jobs for rabbis at schools, hospital chaplaincies, summer camps, and Jewish organizations. I was surprised at the number of pulpit openings that keep popping up, said Rabbi Adir Yolkut, who is in the middle of a year-long rabbi-in-residence program at Temple Israel Center in White Plains, New York, a conservative shul. Yolkut already has done some virtual interviews with synagogue search committees. On the plus side, Yolkut said he can use Zoom to show how he leads davening, teaches a class, and delivers sermons. The disadvantage, he said, is that so much of the things I do are one-to-one, personally-driven intangibles. I feel that is lost when I can't look people in the face and have in-person interaction with them. The reform movement, which boasts 850 synagogues across North America and more than one million reform-identified Jews, has rabbinical seminaries in New York, Cincinnati, and Los Angeles, and ordained 22 students this spring. 
all but one of them have secured full-time jobs at 15 congregations, according to Weisberg. Each student normally is required to do some field work in a synagogue or hospital as well as have some experience in a pastoral setting, such as a nursing home, but the pandemic has forced it all online. Rabbi Joel Alpert, director of rabbinic placement for the Reconstructionist Movement, which reimagines Jewish living, learning, and leadership for a changing world, and has 97 congregations, said the pandemic hasn't frozen rabbinic turnover. Even in a COVID world, it's still pretty normal to have job openings, Albert said. If a rabbi wants to move or if the congregation doesn't want its rabbi, changes will still happen. If a rabbi is retiring or moving, a replacement is needed. The only thing that has radically changed is the interview process. They are spending a lot more time talking to each other on Zoom. And next from JTA, former U.S. Embassy apartment in Tel Aviv sold for $67 million, highest ever for Israeli property. The former U.S. ambassador's residence in Tel Aviv sold for $67 million in July, according to an Israeli tax record made public Monday, the highest price ever for an Israeli property. The sale helped cement the embassy's controversial move to Jerusalem from Tel Aviv, authorized by President Donald Trump, while also recognizing the former city as Israel's capital. In September, the Israeli Daily Globes reported that the property's buyer was Sheldon Adelson, the billionaire casino magnate and major pro-Israel Republican donor who supported the embassy move. After the State Department informally confirmed that the buyer was Adelson, U.S. lawmakers looked into whether the deal complied with regulations, the Associated Press reported. The U.S. Embassy said in August that the buyer was selected solely on the basis of having submitted the highest and best offer. Many Israelis and Jewish Americans rejoiced at the embassy move, one promised by Trump during his 2016 campaign. The Palestinians and their supporters who want authority over part of Jerusalem in an eventual two-state solution deal decried it. And next from JTA, Federal Appeals Court strikes down New York's capacity limits on houses of worship in areas with rising COVID cases by Shira Hanau. A federal court of appeals ruled that New York Governor Andrew Cuomo's capacity limits on houses of worship in areas with rising COVID-19 cases constituted a violation of religious liberty. The ruling on Monday comes after a Supreme Court injunction last month blocking Cuomo from enforcing the rules until the lower court could reevaluate an earlier ruling that upheld state guidelines limiting synagogue attendance to 10 or 25 people. The case, brought by the Catholic Diocese of Brooklyn and, uh, Brooklyn and Agudath Israel of America, an advocacy organization representing Haredi Orthodox Jews, was one of the first religious liberty cases to be decided by the court's new conservative majority. The appeals court ruling was celebrated by Agudath Israel as confirmation that it had achieved a victory for religious liberty. The courts have clearly recognized that the restrictions imposed by New York State violate the constitutional rights of those seeking to attend religious worship services. Rabbi Chaim David Zweibel, executive vice president of Agudath Israel of America, said in a statement Monday. The Court of Appeals did not rule on the constitutionality of percentage capacity limits, which would have impacted smaller houses of worship. Houses of worship in zones with the highest rates of COVID-19, 
so-called red zones, were subjected to capacity limits of 10 people or 25% of building capacity, whichever is fewer. In orange zones, the limit was 25 people or 33% of capacity, whichever is fewer. The court ordered the district court to reevaluate its ruling on the percentage capacity limits imposed by Cuomo to determine if they discriminated against houses of worship. And next from JTA, 10 heartwarming Jewish stories from 2020, a year to otherwise forget, by Gabe Friedman. There's no sugarcoating it. 2020 was a difficult, trying, tragic year. But just because COVID-19 dominated the headlines in our personal lives, that doesn't mean there weren't any Jewish bright spots. Plenty of history was made from a march of tens of thousands against anti-Semitism to a new kind of vaccine that Jewish doctors helped create to a Jewish vice presidential spouse. Here are some of the Jewish stories that helped distract us from the pain of last year. Jews involved with the vaccine. Several Jewish scientists have been at the forefront of the rush to produce an effective COVID-19 vaccine, trying to alleviate the suffering inflicted on the world by the virus in the past year. There is Michael Dolston, the Swedish Jewish head scientist at Pfizer, who was key in helping the pharmaceutical giant produce the first approved vaccine, and talk to JTA about the role of immigrants in scientific innovation and the new form of mRNA vaccines. Tal Zaks, an Israeli, is the chief medical officer of Moderna, the other American company to produce a vaccine authorized by the FBA, and the CEO of Pfizer, Albert Bourla, is a Greek Jew, uh, Greek Jew proud of his heritage. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu claims that helped Israel become one of the first countries to secure a Pfizer vaccine contract. This, uh, the first Jewish second husband. Vice President-elect Kamala Harris wasn't the only member of the Biden presidential ticket to make history in November. Her husband, Doug Emhoff, became the first second husband in American political history and the first Jewish spouse of a president or vice president. He has relished the role speaking at events aimed at Jewish voters and with Jewish politicians. Along the way, Emhoff and Harris have, have helped charge a wave of love for intermarried families. The couple released a video together this month about Hanukkah, one of our favorite holidays in our big modern family, Emhoff said. Zach Banner as Mishpacha. The six foot eight, nearly 350 pound offensive lineman for the Pittsburgh Steelers of Chamorro and African American ancestry became one of the Jewish community's favorite sons this year. After fellow NFL player Deshaun Jackson made headlines in July when he posted a series of anti-Semitic messages on social media, Banner was among the most prominent people to call him out and say publicly that Jews deal with the same amount of hate, similar hardships, and hard times as the black community. Banner said he was partly inspired to speak out after being in Pittsburgh during the Tree of Life synagogue shooting in 2008. Following Banner, a stream of other black athletes and commentators, including the former basketball stars Charles Barkley and Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, took stands against anti-Semitism. Banner's love for the Jews didn't stop with one post. After what he called an outpouring of love from the community, he donated some of his earnings to a Tree of Life-related charity and tried Chala to raise money for his charitable foundation. His thoughts on the Jewish bread via the video he released 
That is fire. Wow. The year of the celebrity Hanukkah video. Maybe it was all of the quarantine isolation. Maybe it was the sense of solidarity brought on by the pain experienced around the world this year. Whatever the reason, this was the year that a large chunk of celebrity zeitgeist, Jewish and non, had fun marking Hanukkah. A non-Jewish rock star, Dave Grohl, and his Jewish producer posted eight entertaining covers of songs by Jewish musicians, one for every night. Chaim, the Jewish pop band, marked the holiday like never before, from song and dance to guitar giveaway. Davi Diggs, the black and Jewish star of Hamilton, among other things, gave us a delightful Hanukkah rap for kids. The Jewish Broadway star Nicolette Robinson and her non-Jewish Broadway star husband Leslie Odom Jr. Uh, Jr. covered Ma'otzur, Rock of Ages, for a holiday, a holiday album and chronicled their family's holiday experience on Instagram, and the list didn't stop there. The Abraham Accords. Before 2020, Israel only had formal diplomatic relations and historically not the warmest relations with two neighboring Arab countries, Egypt and Jordan. As 2020 ended, Israel now has relations with the United Arab Emirates and Bahrain and pending ties with Sudan and Morocco. It also formalized ties with Bhutan, the tiny Buddhist-majority nation known for prioritizing the happiness of its citizens. While the deals include trade-offs that have made some on both sides of Congress's aisle uncomfortable, including advanced military weapons to the UAE and taking Sudan off the U.S. list of terrorism sponsors, the moves have also been widely lauded for enlarging the Arab world's acceptance of Israel. The small communities of Jews living in those countries have rejoiced, and Israelis have been pretty excited too. Over 50,000 of them have already visited the UAE, one of the world's glitziest vacation spots. It's just a fact. Jews are known for their proclivity for winning Nobel Prizes. So much, in fact, that the concept features in all kinds of strange theories about Jewish intelligence. But 2020 was an extra successful year on the Nobel front. Academic Paul Milgram shared the economics prize for his discoveries in the field of auction theory. Poet Louise Gluck won in literature for her unmistakable poetic voice, that with austere beauty makes individual ex existence universal. And Harvey Alter, a researcher for the National Institutes of Health, shared the Nobel in Medicine for helping identify the hepatitis C virus. Not to forget two retired Jewish mathematicians won the Abel Prize, which is seen as the Nobel equivalent for a field that does not award one. One break from the heaviness of a pandemic high holidays came in the form of a beaming six-year-old in Australia, B.B. Shapiro, who went viral with his version of Avinu Malkenu. His mother, Nina, told JTA that she never meant for the video to become public, but was glad it did. People have said it's made them happy and given them hope, she said. And even though I don't understand that the fact that it has done that to people, especially at this time in the world, I'm so grateful for it. Bibi appeared over Zoom during Yom Kippur services at Central Synagogue in New York City, collaborated with a favorite singer from his native South Africa, and spurred an international conversation among Jewish children's musicians, showing the global reach of good news. It's hard to remember a time before the pandemic raged through the country this year, but as the calendar turned to 2020, 
The New York City area was reeling from a spate of violent anti-Semitic attacks, including a Jersey City kosher store and a stabbing in Muncie, New York. Orthodox Jews in Brooklyn were the victims of a sharp uptick in random assaults. In response, New York City officials and local Jewish groups helped, or, helped organize one of the largest marches against anti-Semitism the country has ever seen, which symbolically started in Lower Manhattan and crossed the Brooklyn Bridge. What has happened in Brooklyn, what has happened in Muncie, New York, was an attack on every New Yorker and every New Yorker has felt the pain, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo said before the march. While its impact was blunted by the pandemic, the march offered a sense of optimism and unity to start the year. It's rare for an Israeli athlete to make it to one of the top-tier American sports leagues. It's unprecedented for an Israeli athlete to be touted as one of said league's top prospects. Denny Avdiha achieved both of those feats when he was picked ninth overall in the first round of the 2020 NBA draft by the Washington Wizards. The lanky six-foot-nine forward with heaps of potential, he's just 19, born to a Jewish-Israeli mother and a Muslim-Serbian former Israeli basketball player father, has not been afraid to show off his Jewish pride. He even lit a Hanukkah menorah in a video on the Wizards' Instagram page. The Wizards have embraced Avdia's identity and the new fans it has produced by creating a Hebrew Twitter account. The team's Jewish announcer called him the mensch of the bench, the mensch off the bench on Hanukkah. In his first preseason game, Avdiha was in the starting lineup for the club's regular season debut, albeit a losing one in which his coach said the Israeli was fantastic. In 2019, Minneapolis's Jewish mayor, Jacob Fry, was a rising star and sex symbol. He made significant change in the city's historically fraught zoning rules, endearing him to many fans on the left, and became a Twitter target for President Trump. But in the aftermath of George Floyd's death at the hands of police officers in his city, Frey was thrust into the center of the country's raging debate on police reform. His refusal to defund the city's police department made him a poster child enemy for many progressives. Just before Rosh Hashanah this year, though, he had a joyous reprieve, the birth of his first child, a girl he and his wife, Sarah Clark, named Frida. For us, her birth leading into Rosh Hashanah symbolizes new meanings and hope in the midst of tough days, Frey tweeted. She's our reminder of a better tomorrow. And next from JTA, we spent 2020 fighting about food on Twitter. Why? By Shira Hanau. Even after the candles burned out on the last night of Hanukkah, when the dreidels were put away and the gelt long since eaten, Jews were still debating the appropriate toppings for their latkes. There was team applesauce and team sour cream, equally staunch in their arguments that theirs were the most authentic of the toppings. Some argued that the two should coexist on the same potato pancake, but agreed that ketchup was off-limits. Megan Gallagher, are latkes better with applesauce or sour cream? Answer is both, and if you disagree, you're wrong. The latka wars, as some dubbed the debate, weren't the first food fights to unfold on the battlefield of Twitter. And they are unlikely to be the last. In fact, Jewish food wars on social media are a near constant, cropping up every few months when someone offers a risky take on the merits of chocolate hummus 
or a variation of Kugel. Even Dr. Anthony Fauci was drawn into the Latka debate going to bat for the sour cream supporters. But is the face-off really about sour cream and applesauce, or is there more on the line than condiment preferences? When Alex Zaiden first confessed to Twitter two years ago that he finds Humantashen, the triangle-shaped Purim cookies, to be unredeemable culinarily and beloved only for their nostalgic value, the backlash was fierce. I was like, I have to be a little bit careful about those because I am wading into things that are borderline sacred to people. But instead of pulling back on his food opinion, Zeldin has only doubled down. He frequently posts controversial food takes for his more than 10,000 followers, like his opinion voiced as early as November 30th that applesauce has no place on a latka, the first shot fired in this year's latka wars. The conversations he, crea uh, he cultivates exemplify the nature of Jewish food discussions on social media where the barrier to entry is low, the jokes are plentiful, but the stakes, no pun intended, are often higher than expected. Alex Zayden's tweet, Hanukkah begins next week, so it's as good a time as any. To remind the Ashkenazim, Eastern European Jews among you, that applesauce gets paired with cinnamon, not latkes. Respect your roots, dip your latkes in sour cream. While Zeldin tries to keep the tone of the arguments lighthearted, Others say social media arguments about Jewish food are really proxy wars for deeper tensions in Jewish life. Rather than constituting a silly diversion from the more weighty political discussions that often dominate the platform, they say the food debates point to deeper existential questions about modern Jewish identity that are constantly churning for many Jews but not possible to hash out on Twitter. Offering a contrarian take on homentation or polling about ketchup fits neatly into 280 characters in a way that, say, hashing out the historic dominance of white Ashkenazi Jews in public Jewish life, or the way multi-faith families are welcomed into synagogues does not. Posting that latkes served with mango chutney doesn't count as Jewish may seem less toxic than debating the status of someone's conversion to Judaism, but for the person who takes their latkes with mango chutney, the claim can still feel like an attack on their identity. Here, we're getting a witness to the fact that food and folkways and culture are also really significant anchors in Jewish identity and, pra and practice, said Yehuda Kurtzer, president of the Sholem Hartman Institute of North America, who eats his latkes with applesauce. He calls it an unimpeachable classic, and sometimes creme fraiche and smoked salmon. And the fact that people fight about it shows the extent to which they're passionate about those as really significant anchors of their identity. A tweet from Lahav Harkov, I realize the argument over latkes, eight sour cream, or applesauce has gotten very heated on Jewish Twitter, so I bring you a new options, latkes dipped in tomato soup. And a response from Ellie Fisher, basically you're on team ketchup, welcome aboard. To Rachel B. Gross, a professor, of Jewish studies at San Francisco State University, the debates about the proper way to eat Jewish foods and which Jewish foods, uh, which foods are actually Jewish, are really about drawing boundaries to determine which of the people who consume those foods are in or out. I think what could be happening here could be described as Jewish nationalism and certainly Jewish boundary making and a long history with people using food in this way, said Gross, 
whose forthcoming book, Beyond the Synagogue, Jewish Nostalgia as Religious Practice, includes a section on the role of food in modern Jewish identity. Food is precisely about ethnic boundary making, according to Ari Ariel, a professor of history and international studies at the University of Iowa who has written about Middle Eastern Jewish food and is a graduate of the French Culinary Institute in New York. If you're trying to define an ethnic group, that generally means defining attributes of that group, and food, that, uh, food ways is always a big part of that. A tweet from Lara Hala Black Girl am Hands up, ketchup on latkes. Hands up, a pickle slice on latke. Hands up, sweet chili sauce from the Chinese restaurant on latkes. Hands up, fried plantain and latkes. And a response, uh, fight me is what she puts out there. And the response from Jeremy Price, as we're now halfway into Kislev and approaching Hanukkah, remember this, ketchup does not belong on latkes. Ketchup turns latkes into hash browns. But for Jews who have adopted local cuisine from the places they lived all over the world, there is no unified cuisine shared by all. Instead, there are many, from Georgian Jewish food and Yemenite Jewish food to Eastern European foods such as latkes. For some observers of social media food discussions like the one about latke toppings this month, the conversations can feel exclusive of those who eat different foods or don't come from an Eastern European Ashkenazi background. In a year in which the food publishing world has undergone numerous scandals and in which ethnic foods have been stripped of their historic roots and the Jewish community has gone through a reckoning with its own racial and ethnic diversity, Conversations about food can be freighted. Rabbi Ruth Abush Magder, Education Director at B'chol Lashon, an organization that aims to raise awareness of diversity within the Jewish community, said she finds the discussions about latkes to be frustratingly narrow. I was just watching people get, in get into these fights, and maybe they're just joking around, but for some people these jokes feel exclusive, she said, wondering why Tostones, Buenuelas, uh, Bunuelas and other fried foods aren't part of the discussion when people talk about Hanukkah foods, or they still create an exclusive vision of what Jewish is, and Jewish is so broad. The consequence of calling latkes Jewish food is to say Jews are Ashkenazi, Jews who eat, la Jews who eat lash latkes, said Ariel, whose father is Yemenite and often makes zalabia, a kind of Middle Eastern donut for Hanukkah. A tweet from Coffee is a mess. Maybe my no is too strong because I'm not mad about it, but ketchup is not my first or third choice for latkes. And a tweet reply from Inspiration Information. If someone handed you a latke that was very undersalted and ketchup was the only available topping, would you eat the bland latke straight or would you put ketchup on it? To Anthony Russell, a Yiddishist and singer who is black, the debates that break out on Twitter over Jewish foods like latkes are much about much more than the dominance of Eastern European Jewish traditions in American Jewish life, though he eats his own latkes with applesauce and sour cream, calling himself a traditionalist. They're about bigger conversations, he said, about who's representative of American Judaism, what does American Jewish culture look like, what does it taste like, who gets to call the shots as to what American Judaism looks like? Some of the food arguments touch on long-standing disagreements over Jewish authenticity and what food, music, or rituals are authentically Jewish. 
there is a larger and really uncomfortable debate about what is authentically Jewish and how should that look in public, Kurtzer said. And if for a lot of people their identity is tied into their food, and I think it is, it's not surprising that when that conversation takes place in public, it makes people uncomfortable, it makes them angry. Tima Smith's Twitter, being a Toronto Jew is indulging in the ultimate Jewish food, blueberry buns, in Toronto and only in Toronto. And a tweet reply from Rachel C. I had no idea blueberry buns were a Toronto thing. Gross says she tries to take a Twitter break every time a holiday is coming because she finds the food fights and the accompanying claims about Jewish authenticity tiring. There's not one essentially Jewish food, she said, and claiming there is oversimplifies the variety within Jewish cuisine. If you're claiming that there's an authentic Judaism, you're not accounting for the vast ways that Judaism has been lived throughout time and space, Gross said. You're getting a really flat picture, and you're not allowing for change. What is essential to Jewish culture, according to cookbook author Leah Koenig, is the fact that food is often tied to the memories that make up Jewish identity, like family dinners or visits to grandparents. A lot of the folks in the younger generation are not necessarily super connected to Jewish traditions, but they did grow up eating deli, or they did grow up having latkes on Hanukkah, Koenig said, so for them it's also an identity thing. It feels very, very personal. Sometimes the social media food fights veer into claiming certain foods like kugel or gefilte fish or brisket are unequivocally bad, but Koenig also sees an effort underway among Jewish food writers to reinvent those foods and improve upon them. And sometimes the memories of the food are more important than whether or not it tasted good then or tastes good now. Shoshana tweets, People who complain about Ashkenazi food just haven't had good Ashkenazi food. To which Tamis Smith tweets a reply, It's been a while since the last edition of the Jewish Food Wars. Since we are all stuck socially isolating, it's probably time to reignite that shit-positing extravaganza. And go. Even if the food was culinarily not that great, there's still the layer of memories and nostalgia on top of it, Koenig said, there's this sense of what the meal felt like that colors people's memories of what the food tasted like. Reinventing Jewish food can also mean discovering dishes from other Jewish cuisines, like swapping out a sweet brisket recipe for an herby Persian lamb stew or kibbeh for meatballs. But without in-person events and face-to-face interactions, opportunities to expand our food horizons are limited to what we can make in our own kitchens or order as takeout. In the absence of food festivals, we get food fights and latke wars. They're just words, but you can't eat the words, Russell said. You can eat the argument, so it never actually goes anywhere. Even so, Zeldin sees an upside. To him, the food tweets are more about having fun discussions about questions of Jewish identity than any specific Jewish uh, specific foods, and in his experience, the discussions are a way to bring together Jews of different political stripes and religious affiliations who might otherwise not agree on much at all. Well, that's all the time we have this week for the Jewish News Hour. This is Marshall Weiss, and I thank you very much for listening.